Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you're here this morning. Anyone else um, willing to admit today that they are all about this new show on Amazon Prime called The Rings of Power? Anybody else watching that? Okay, a lot less than I thought. This is going to be a rough intro. Well, let's try that again. Sure, nobody else? All right, a couple more people venturing their confidence there. Okay, well, it's a big deal, all right? And if you are a Middle Earth nerd like I enjoy uh, and am, then you'll appreciate this. And if you're not, this intro is going to go right past you. So just ride with me, okay? If you don't know what it is, The Rings of Power is a prequel. It's been created to give a little bit of the backstory introducing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Anybody familiar with The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings? Hey, there we go. All right, maybe I got a little better shot than I thought. These are really well-known, well-loved stories written in the 1950s by J.R.R. Tolkien. Well-known, well-loved. I love them. My wife loves them. We spend as much time in Middle Earth as possible. Um, Middle Earth is obviously where the stories take place. They are brilliant stories. Tolkien is a masterful storyteller. And these movies are not only some of my favorite, I'm sorry, these books are not only some of my favorite books, but they've also become some of my favorite movies. And if you have watched The Lord of the Rings, it's amazing that those were produced 20 years ago, which makes you start to feel a little bit older than maybe you did five minutes ago. Um, They've been around for a long time, but beautiful movies, still some of the most, uh, the highest grossing uh, films uh, of all time. But throughout this trilogy, we are introduced to, right in the front end of this, a a ranger from the north, and he's known at first as Strider. And he's kind of this lone ranger who does his thing and wanders the wild. But over the course of the the series, of the trilogy, you learn that this, this Strider, this ranger, is not just some average guy. He is next in line for the kingdom of Gondor. He is the rightful heir to the throne of men. He's a big deal. But by the time you get to the third book, the journey has taken us all the way finally to this kingdom of Gondor, and you meet someone else who is sitting on the throne in that time. And his name is Denethor. And Denethor is not the king, but he's the ruler at the moment. He's the steward of Gondor. And the movies especially highlight the tension that that Denethor feels inside of himself when he hears word that Aragorn, the rightful king, is on his way to him. And the question that we're faced with is, how is Denethor, a little subplot of the whole movie, how is Denethor, the steward of Gondor, going to react when the king shows up? Spoiler alert, those of you who haven't seen it, it doesn't turn out well. He goes running off a cliff in a blazing ball of fire. It doesn't turn out well. Like, he goes out in fire, literally. But that, that question is actually a really, really important question. It's the question that Mark is asking of his readers, of us, from the beginning of the book all the way to even the way that the book ends. Is meant to ask us the exact same question. How will you respond when the rightful king arrives? All the way in from Jesus' very first words in the book, which we find recorded in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it starts off with this kingdom language. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. 
This is, this is Mark's intro, just letting you know, hey, this is where we're going. This is all about this kingdom of God has come near, which means that the rule and the reign of God is breaking into this broken, dark world. And the rightful king is on his way. In fact, the rightful king has come, he says. And when the rightful king is on the throne, everything is now right in the world. See, that's the story of the Bible. You could retell the story of the Bible and the story of kingdoms. That the story of the Bible starts with God creating a world, a perfect world, and placing humanity in it to be his partners to rule over this world and extend his rule and reign over the, whole place, over the face of the whole earth. Where they enjoyed a special relationship, man and God, with no blemish, no pain, no sin, no shame. But the problem is that humanity said no thank you to God as king. They'd rather take his stuff, rather decide what is right and wrong, and don't need the giver and the one who is all wise, the sovereign ruler of the world. In doing so, God actually gives humanity over to their desires. You, you don't want me. I will give you over to what you've wanted. The problem is it's going to lead to death and sadness and brokenness. And that's the story of the world that we live in. The kingdom of light was plunged into darkness from that moment. The problem isn't that God all of a sudden stops being sovereign and stops being king when we talk about the kingdom of darkness, but it means that his rule and his sovereign authority over every inch of this known universe and the parts we haven't even found yet are not acknowledged. They're denied. He's rejected as king, and we see that all around us, and we see the fruit of that. And that's what's described as the kingdom of darkness. Galatians calls it this present evil age. It's described as many different places. And it's our present day experience where sin and shame and death, all of that is all around us and even inside of us. So that every part of our lives, every relationship, every emotion, everything is touched and tainted by sin. There's not a part of us that is untouched. But from that very moment, God did not leave us to that entirely. He gave his promise right out of the gate, just maybe moments after we rejected him. He came back and said, I am going to renew and I'm going to fix and restore everything. He didn't leave us that way. And he said he will come back and take back what is rightfully his. And his rule and his reign will be acknowledged by all. That's the story of scripture. And that's what Jesus says when he says the kingdom of God has come near is that moment, he says, has started. God has taken another massive step forward into his plan and his work to renew and fix everything that's broken. It's a long-told prophet. Prophets have talked about this for, the, the prophets of Israel have talked about this forever. For example, Isaiah chapter 40 says, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain, lift up your voice with a shout and say, Here is your God. The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him and he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them close to his heart. This is the picture that Jesus is announcing when he says, Hey, the good news is coming. The good news is coming in that I, the sovereign Lord, am coming. And when I rule and reign over my people, it's going to be what you've always wanted to, to experience. There's going to be protection. There's going to be safety. There's going to be reward. There's life. Everything that you've longed for. But it's not just for Israel. Isaiah 52 later on says that he's going to do this in the sight of all the nations. And the whole world, 
The ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Which really sounds like good news, except if you read through all the prophets, you get a mix of really good news and some really harsh, scary warnings. That the good news is good news for those who belong to the people of God. But there's judgment coming for those who reject him, for his enemies. For those who are his people, salvation is coming. But on that same day is also terrible news for those who have rejected him. And what's, what, what's the difference here between these two? What's, what's the difference between the people of God and the enemies of God? And it all comes down to your response to this announcement. It comes down to our response to the declaration that the rightful king has come. And so that's where this morning's passage takes us. The passage that Alana just read for us lays out a number of different responses to this claim. Because you have to remember, we're not just, we're, we're taking Mark and chopping it up into little sections, but it's a story that's been building on itself. And so this pronouncement that the kingdom of God has come near back in chapter 1 is still building into chapter 3 where we are today. And you're going to see a bunch of different examples as to how people possibly could respond Some of them are really positive. Some of them are really negative. But the question this morning is, how will we respond when the rightful king has come? Our hope is that these stories, Scripture is written in such a way that it's not just a check it, I've read it, but it's written for us as a sort of meditation literature, meaning that the more you sit with this with God's Word. His Spirit takes His Word and kind of peels back different layers of who we are, revealing our hearts, but most importantly, making it so that we can more clearly see the heart of God for us. And so that's what I'm hoping we can do today, that we can more honestly answer the question, what is my response to King Jesus? The first response, we're actually going to start and and kind of pick out from the passage the responses that are unhelpful. (laughs) unwise, the poor responses, and then we'll shift to the, to the examples that are given to us uh, to emulate ourselves. It starts with the crowd. You see this crowd has, has, has basically followed Jesus throughout his entire ministry. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. And you, you've seen this throughout the entire, throughout the entire uh, book of Mark so far, is people are flocking to Jesus, which is always really good news. And for me, it's always a little bit confusing. It's a little bit kind of emotionally like, I'm not sure that this is as good as it looks on the surface. Because in some level, the crowds that follow Jesus are in some way a fulfillment of what Isaiah said, that, that the nations will see, that the people around the whole world will see and be drawn to the Messiah, Jesus, this promised one. The problem is the Gospels, all four of the Gospels give you a picture that's not as pretty of the crowd's motives. Let's keep going in what it says. Verse 10, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. See, almost all the gospel writers, when they talk about the crowds following Jesus, you find out that their motivation isn't necessarily because he's just made a pronouncement of the kingdom of God's arrival, but they tend to follow him for different reasons, because they're hungry, because their circumstances are unfortunate, and they just want Jesus to deal with what they think their needs are. They bring to him their list. Fix this for me. I'm hungry. Very similar to our kids, actually, (laughs) now that I say that, right? It's just this, give me I need, and here's my list. They start to treat him like a cosmic vending machine. Come to him when you need something and, and, and leave him when he stops giving you what you want. Our pastors have already talked about this over the last couple of weeks, but this is, an oppor- this is a moment where what is happening is the crowd is turning the king into the assistant, turning the king into your butler. So where I just come to Jesus with all my needs, and that's the only thing he's good for. Might not say that, but might live that. Problem is Jesus isn't interested in being your admin. He's not Santa Claus. He's the king. Which is why as he, he allows people to come to him that way, but he always calls them to more. He always raises the bar for the crowd. But that is one of the possible responses to the king showing up. Try to turn the king into your assistant. Jump down with me, if you would, for the next two examples to chapter 3, verse 20 to 30. Because in these next two responses, speaking of butler, Mark likes to make sandwiches, not the actual sandwiches. He kind of does this literary technique where he, he creates a sandwich with his writing. He starts a story, pauses that story, goes to another story, and then comes back. And you kind of see the bread and the meat and the bread, right? And he does that throughout the whole book because he's trying to draw your attention. Hey, these two stories are one. Read them together. And so as we do that, we come down to verse 20 where Jesus enters the house again and there's another crowd. And the crowd is so big and so needy. They're pushing in. There's no room. The disciples have no time. Jesus isn't eating. He's busy serving people. Verse 21 takes us to the next response. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Other translations say to seize him, which when anyone in the book of Mark, this happens several times, tries to seize Jesus, it's not a good thing. It's opposition. They're opposing Jesus. Why? Because it says they thought he was out of his mind. He's confused. Verse 22, this is the middle part of the sandwich. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, these are the big dogs of Judaism. These aren't just your your kind of rural priests. These are the scribes who are in the temple. They come and they say to him, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he's driving out demons. And what, Jesus, or what Mark here is trying to do is to show us that these two responses, while on the surface look different, are essentially at the core the exact same response to Jesus. Let's go first at his family. His family wants to control him. They want to seize him. Now, Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of backdrop on that, right? It doesn't tell us why. 
But again, if we kind of put the whole story together, there's a couple of options here. Number one, Jesus has been causing a whole lot of problems. He has been, he's been doing things that have riled up all the religious, religious institution. He's causing, he, he, he's claiming to forgive sins. He's doing things that appear to be breaking the Sabbath. He's causing all sorts of problems, and maybe Jesus' family is just like, hey, this, you're carrying us into this as well. Maybe they're just looking out for him and thinking, Jesus, you just need to take a break, so we're going to control you in this. We're going to pull you out because you don't know exactly what you're doing. Either way, whatever the motivation is, trying to seize control of Jesus because he's out of his mind and confused is a problem. They're trying to control him. Then we come to the scribes, the religious leaders, the ones who came down out of Jerusalem, take this a step further. They're threatened by Jesus' authority. They're threatened by his power, so they want to discredit him. And so they say that his authority actually comes not from God, but from Beelzebul, the prince of demons, they say. You don't hear Beelzebul outside of the Gospels. We don't really know a whole lot of what that is, but Jesus kind of translates it for us, right? When he goes on and says, you're telling me that I'm by the power of Satan driving out Satan. Now, why are these stories together? These stories are together to show us a really important point, that to resist or deny in part or in full Jesus' authority and sovereign rule as king is to deny him entirely. Meaning Jesus doesn't come as king and say, can I just be king of like maybe a small portion of your life? You can keep control over this. Or denying him outright, the fullest extent. Either one, both are the same. Jesus is king, period. There is no controlling him. There is no denying it. You can deny the earth is round as long as you want. You can deny it whatever you want. It doesn't change reality. Jesus isn't interested in partial lordship as being part of king, king of part of your life. And so Jesus calls the crowds over to him and the scribes over, and he says to them, verse 23, he began to speak in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, he is divided, he cannot stand, and his end has come. Jesus says, your accusation is kind of ridiculous. Why would Satan work to weaken and destroy his own kingdom? And then if you look down a couple of verses to verse 28, there's, there's a really intense line that Jesus says. You may have heard it called the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. He says in verses 28, 29, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander that they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That's some serious language coming from Jesus who says, I came to seek and to save. What is he talking about? In 2006, there was a a trend that kind of hit YouTube that was called the blasphemy challenge. And this challenge was taken up by some atheists who challenged all other atheists to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and took this passage and read it as super 
face value as what they thought was face value as they could, and challenged people to record themselves and post to YouTube saying, I deny the Holy Spirit. If you know Penn and Teller, uh, Penn is the most well-known one who did this, of that duo, magician, illusionist duo. And I don't know how many people, lots of people took it up on it. Is that, is that what Jesus is saying? If you utter the words, I deny the Holy Spirit, or I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, like, did I just commit the unpardonable sin by saying those words? And of course, you're kind of like, no, in the same way that just uttering the words, Jesus is Lord, does not make you a follower of Christ, right? But what is going on here? It's an unpardonable sin, as we see here in Mark, is a refusal to acknowledge that Jesus' work and ministry are sent by and empowered by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan. It's denying that Jesus has come from God. And Jesus warns that the persistent rejection of the Spirit's work in your life is like sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. If He is the only hope, if Jesus has come to embody the promises of the Old Testament prophets, to come to be the one who will drive out darkness and bring the kingdom of God, who will bring salvation, then denying that He has come from God is cutting off that branch while you're sitting on the end. And so we see a number of unhelpful responses. The crowd wanted to use Jesus. His family wanted to control him. And the scribes outright rejected his authority, attributing it to Satan. What are we supposed to do with these examples? Well, I hope that your response is not just to think about somebody else. And not to just easily start thinking about that person at work who outright rejects. Or, or that family member who claims they're a Christian but compartmentalizes areas of their life. And I hope that we have the ability to, as Scripture is designed to, to also help reveal our own hearts. It's super easy to start pointing the finger at the religious leaders, condemn them for their failure, or at the crowd or Jesus' family. But do we have the wisdom to see how easy it is for us to, just like Denethor from The Lord of the Rings, try to deny the rule and the reign of the king in our own lives. When you think about this, when you, when you think about your time with the Lord, is it you bringing your Christmas list to him? Are, you, are, are we doing the same thing that the crowd does? Are we, are we just coming to him, not to spend time with him, but just to get our needs met and go? Is there no intimacy is it just, I have a physical or circumstantial need that, Jesus, you've got to fix it. Ring your little butler bell. Rub the lamp. Get the genie to come. Fulfill your wishes. Does it involve any listening? Or maybe like his family, do you find you trying just to control Jesus? Maybe you're not like the crowds outright denying his kingship, but you've just got certain areas of your life that are just off limits to Jesus. That's my work life. You might not say these things with your words, but your actions embody them. Are there sections of your life that you've not surrendered to Jesus, that you think you can be king of these areas? He can have the rest. Again, Jesus is trying to show us 
There is no partial kingship here. He's not sharing the throne with anyone. And while this passage does give us some warnings, it also does give us some positive pictures here. Come back to the end of that sandwich, right? Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive, standing outside. Remember, there's too many people in the room. They can't get to him. They've come to seize him. They've come to control him. They send someone in. They send the message in. The crowd was sitting outside or sitting around him, and they, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus answers, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked around those seated in the circle and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. And like we talked about last week, if you were here, this is not an attempt to just clean up the outside. This is not check enough boxes, do enough of God's will, and you become a part of the family. That's, that's as absurd as me standing in my garage and thinking I've just become a car. But it's throughout the whole picture of Mark. Remember, he's, he's, he's forcing us to being confronted with the king coming. The question is, how will you respond to him? And so the picture has to, the picture that we get, the positive answer to that is being developed throughout the entire book. See, if we go back, when Jesus made his first announcement, he started off by saying, The kingdom of God has come near, and then he gives you the first steps repent and believe the good news. Repent. Repent is a really beautiful word, it's not scary. Repent means stop pretending. Stop pretending that you are king. Stop pretending that you're a good co-king with Jesus. Admit that you don't have it in you. Admit that you're not able to clean yourself up. Stop trying and come and turn to him. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. It's the first step. But then, jump back to verse 13 because That is not just a one-and-done moment. What you're called to in that moment is a beginning of a transformed life that is with Jesus as what the Bible calls the disciples. We skipped over that section. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Repentance is the beginning of the response to being a disciple. The Bible doesn't, in this section, use the word the disciple. It uses the word, it tells you the number, the 12. Now, anytime you hear 12 in the Bible, you should automatically be going back to the nations of Israel. The people of God in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus is reconstituting that. He's saying, listen, I'm talking about what it looks like to be a part of the people of God which are made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to do that, first thing you see in this is that when called, respond to him. We come to him. When the Lord calls us, when the Lord by his spirit does a supernatural work in your life to open the eyes of your heart, to to help you to see that you're a terrible God of your own life, that you're a terrible king, brings you to the place of repentance What do we do? We come to him. We don't come to him with our agenda. 
We don't come to him trying to control him. Because in that moment, you're actually the top dog. Trying to control Jesus means that you are the king. But we come to him. We come to him in faith. And he goes on and he says a couple of things. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. A couple of things that you see there. Number one is that being a disciple, the response that Jesus calls for us, when the king comes, what do we do? We follow him. We want to be with him. That presence precedes any action for us. That the foundation of being a disciple is you are one who is with the master. Which means the bottom line of being a disciple is not checking boxes or accomplishing things for Jesus. The foundation that we build on of being a disciple is that we're with him. That we delight in his presence. Later on in scripture, we get a story of Martha and Mary. And Martha and Mary, Jesus goes to their house, their sisters, and Martha's doing a lot of work. She's busy for Jesus. She's serving him, and that's great. She gets mad at Mary because Mary is busy sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, Martha gets mad. Jesus, tell her to get up and work. And he goes, Martha, she's chosen the best thing possible to sit and to be with me. That's the essence of what it means to be a disciple. But being in the presence of Jesus does not leave you the same. Being in the presence of Jesus transforms us and makes us those who then go out and do what? He says to preach and drive out demons. What has Jesus been doing this entire time? He's been preaching and driving out demons. Here's what Mark's trying to help us to see. That being with Jesus leads to a transformed life that looks more and more like Jesus. This is what John says in 1 John 2, 6, that those who claim to be in Jesus must live as he did. Those who are truly following Jesus are with Jesus and their lives begin to look like Jesus. Which is why Jesus comes back at the end and says, by the way, it's not those who are born into Christian homes. It's not those who go to church. It's not those who fill in the blank, live moral-ish enough lives, at least better than that person over there. It's the one who does the will of my Father that is my family. Who does the will of the Father because they have turned from relying on their own works, they've repented, turned their eyes towards Jesus and trusted Him as their only hope. And as you spend time with Jesus, you begin to be transformed to look like Jesus. That's what Jesus means when he says, those who do the will of my Father are my brothers and sisters. Kent Hughes, an author, says that obedience does not originate, he does not begin a relationship with God, but it is a sign of a relationship with God. Love the way he puts that. Cannot have one part without the other. Right doctrine, knowing the right answers is good, but you realize that's insufficient. You know why I say that? Because if you look up in the first couple of verses of this passage, do you know who else knows the right answers? The demons. The demons have the right answers. This is, a, this is a cause for introspection. This is a cause for looking at our lives. 
The invitation is to, to examine how will you respond to the king that he has come? Will you try to put qualifiers on him? Will you put your agenda and impose your agenda on your king? Or will you come open-handed saying, whatever you say, the answer is yes. Yes, God, even this dark part of my life that I want to hide, even this part that doesn't feel like I want to give it to you because it's going to hurt, it's going to be uncomfortable, Jesus, I surrender it to you. Why? Because you are the king, and I'm not. I've tried my whole life to be the king, and it never works, because if you're all trying to do the same thing, we've got some tiny little kingdoms of one, and they're always combative with one another. And the invitation is to surrender today. Here's the problem. The problem is none of us are born in spiritual Switzerland. You know what I mean by that? Switzerland, if you were born in Switzerland, this is not a jab at you. <laughs> none of us are born in spiritual Switzerland. Switzerland is neutral ground. They have, their, their foreign policy in war is armed neutrality, and it's been that way since the 1500s. None of us are born in a neutral place. We're actually born in the kingdom of darkness, enslaved by it. Which is why the key to this passage, the most beautiful part of this passage, is the little parable that I skipped over. Look at verse 27 with me. Jesus is telling the story and he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Just to put us in the right spot here, you're the one that's bound in this house. You're the one who starts out enslaved to the powers of darkness and Satan is the strong man. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. And that's where we start. Tied up, helpless. But what's Jesus come to do? He's come to enter the strong man's house. He became like one of us. And he entered the house, but he's the only one who didn't start there. He's the only one, only human who's ever been in that house that is not bound. And guess what? He's stronger than the strong man. And Jesus, his whole journey in Mark has been to demonstrate that. Yeah, sin, death, I can forgive sin. Death, disease, sickness, I can fix that. Demons, get out and shut up. He has demonstrated his authority, his strength over the strong man. And what he has done is just given a little sampling of what he's about to do. Because the ultimate binding of the strong man comes when the strong man does his absolutely worst on the Son of God. When he takes him and he nails him to a cross of wood because he thinks in that moment he can win. But what the strong man doesn't realize is that what he is doing, what the enemy has done, has sealed his own fate. That the very act of crucifying Jesus Christ on the cross was God's plan all along to bring about the salvation. So that as Satan nails Jesus to the cross, he binds his own hands too. And Jesus, in victory, rises on the third day. And Colossians tells us that he doesn't just do it in victory, he does it and humiliates Satan. How embarrassing. Your best attempt to stop me sealed your own defeat. And you and I are the possessions that have been plundered from the powers of darkness. If you are looking to Jesus in faith, if you feel the Spirit's nudge in your life, respond to him. Turn to him in faith. If that's where you are, surrender 
every aspect of your life to Jesus because there's no other response that's worthy of a king. Nothing else makes sense. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to repent, believe that the king is here, and surrender to him, to put yourself in position where you are with him. What are the rhythms of your life that allow you to sit and be still before Jesus in a world that is fast-paced and loud? How can we sit and be still with him? Because as we're with him, we will be transformed And the result of this isn't that you become his servants or his slaves. Jesus says something amazing at the end. He says, this is my family. Not only does it transform the way that we view the king, but it also then starts to shape the way that we see each other. Go back to the only spot in the passage we haven't really looked at, and it's because it's a list of names. The list of names is really interesting to me because it's not put there haphazardly. You get 12 men who are listed as those who Jesus has called out to be his disciples who become the apostles, the sent out ones. The foundation of the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the law. But look at who they are. You think it was pretty? You think it was easy? You got two guys in there who are nicknamed sons of thunder. And it's not because they really enjoy a good storm, a good storm to look at, right? Like it's not like they just, no, these guys are hotheads. You don't think there was some tension in the group? If you don't think there's tension in the group, look down at two of the guys there. One's named Matthew. He is a tax collector, which means he is a traitor to his own people. When Rome came over to, to occupy Israel, he decided that's his moment to get his, his wealth because he collected taxes, but the way he made his money was to take extra from his own people. Oh, and then there's also Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is an ardent patriot who would rather fight Rome, who's going to squash him if he tried, than to submit to them and pay taxes. These are the people that God has called together. You don't think that was tense? You think you have something rough in here in some relationships? These are people that are put on opposite sides of any political spectrum. And what Jesus is doing is saying that not only does my Death, not only does my binding of the strong man change the way that you interact with me so that now you're no longer my enemies, you're not even slaves, you're my, you're my family. We are brothers and sisters of Christ, sons and daughters of the King. But it changes the way you view one another, which is exactly why we go to the communion table together. You know that you can't take communion by yourself? It's just not communion, actually. It's just eating bread and drinking juice. Communion is something that the family, it's a family dinner. We come together, this is why, why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are one, we eat from one loaf because we are one body. And so as we transition our time to the communion table, not only is this a moment to reflect and to remember that the binding of the strong man came at the cost of Jesus' life. That by his broken body and by his shed blood, you were brought out, you were plundered from the enemy. And the only rightful response is to surrender yourself entirely to the king, every area, whatever he asks. But as you do that, you look around and you realize, so have they, your brothers and sisters seated at the table. And let that transform 
the way that we interact with one another. May we be more generous with one another, more forgiving, more compassionate towards one another. This is why we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed to bring about redemption, to bring about the forgiveness of our sins, that we no longer belong to ourselves. We are no longer have to pretend that we are the kings of our lives, but we surrender ourselves to you. And Lord, we surrender even the parts that we don't like. We don't want you to see. You already see them and you fully love us. The darkest parts of our hearts you have already forgiven. And not because we are special, but because of your goodness to us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blood and for your body that was given for us. And we thank you for placing us inside a family of God. And Lord, as we come to your table, may we remember, may we reflect, and may we be grateful. Change us and transform us even as we sit with you now. In Jesus' name, amen.